0: We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Pretty easy to find. There's a Bible in a seat back in front of you. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the reading of God's word.
1: Um, We are, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, We are in a series entitled Spark. And throughout this series, we have been exploring practices that spark in us greater love. Practices that might turn our affections, practices that might reignite, so to say, the flame of our hearts, the loves within us, or maybe for the first time, ignite love in us and help us curate a deeper sense of affection. We've been in this series since the beginning of January, so January all the way until today. Today we're wrapping it up, but we've really enjoyed it. Uh, Hopefully you have too. It's been really powerful, really helpful. And there's a handful of tools that will continue to be available to the community even after the series is done. So if you haven't had a chance to, even though this is the last week, you are welcome to grab one of these Spark journals. There's uh, like at the end of the communion table, a little bin These are available. They stand alone. So even if you haven't listened to the sermons, you can still use these as like a resource or as a devotional or as a guide. And then there's also a separate podcast online called Spark that walks through these practices from different perspectives and different angles. And so if you would like to continue diving into these resources or maybe something was like sparked in you that you want to continue to work at or learn about, you have these resources online that will continue to be available to you. So we've been doing this since January. We've talked about practices as diverse as rest and play to practices like justice and lament. And today we are going to wrap up our series by talking about the practice of work. Now you may not think of work as a spiritual practice, but I think we should consider it a spiritual practice because it is in many ways a spiritual practice, whether we consider it that or not. Whether we acknowledge it or not, our practice of work is deeply shaped by our beliefs about God and our beliefs about the world. It is enveloped in a kind of faith understanding, and it's not just a practice that we do in day-to-day life. Work is, for most of us, the primary practice that we spend our lives doing. We work more than we do almost anything else. We'll spend about a third of our lives working. So it is a primary practice, maybe the primary practice of our life, and it is covered and shaped in an understanding of God, an understanding of the world, and an understanding of faith. And here's what what I mean by that. I think this is true uniquely for Americans. I mean, every nation works, but I think faith and work are uniquely tied together for those of us living in the States, especially for those of us born in the States. Uh, Americans, on average, work more than any other developed nation in the world, and it's kind of by a lot. So Americans work around 1,767 hours a year. That's what it was in 2020 were the most recent stats I could find on this. If you compare it to other nations, it's actually fascinating how much more Americans work than similar peers in other nations. We work 400 hours more a year than our peers in the UK. 400 hours more. That's a wild number. We work 365 hours more than our peers in Germany or France. I was thinking that Germany would be really close. Stereotypes? Nope. 365 hours more than our German peers and 169 hours more than our peers in Japan. That's how much more, on average, an American works than peers and coworkers in similar nations. Now, don't answer this question out loud, but what did you think when I said that? Because you hear about how much more Americans work than other nations. What feelings begin to generate inside of you? Just think about it for a second. A little pride. We work so much more than other nations, and sociologists debate why Americans tend to work so much more than other nations. It's kind of like a raging debate in sociological studies. And it's complicated. Like, it would be... um, Foolish to say there's one reason that Americans work so much more than other nations. But there is one theory that is largely agreed upon by sociologists that is at least considered a contributing factor to the reason that Americans work so much more than other nations. And this theory was put forward right at the beginning of the 1900s by the father of modern sociology, Max Weber, in what he called the Protestant work ethic. Anybody familiar with the phrase the Protestant or Puritan or Calvinist work ethic? Probably learned about it in a basic sociology class. The premise of the Protestant work ethic is that Protestants believe, and this is true in large part, that the best way to glorify God is through hard work. Through doing good and important work. That if we can do hard work, if we can dedicate ourselves to hard work, then that is how we will glorify God. That belief emerges during the Reformation and is really important. It's kind of easy to criticize it today as we stand on this side of history, but it's actually a really important development because when the Reformation happened, only some kinds of work were considered worthy of dignity. Clerical work, clergy work, like what I do, was considered worthy of dignity and honor. Royalty was considered worthy of dignity and honor. But everyday work, farming, agriculture, It was considered less than. And so the Reformation has this beautiful moment that's like all work can be glorifying to God. All work can be dignifying. All work can upset the hierarchy of royalty and clericalism and all of it can be important and all of it can be good. And so this very beautiful idea that all work is worthy of dignity becomes this foundation, this bedrock for an ethic of work that sort of defines Protestant life. And it impacts the entire world, this notion of work and effort. But the age of colonization sees the first Protestant nation established, America. We're a unique experiment in that sense, that Puritans running from Europe come here and establish a culture built on this kind of work ethic. And so a Protestant work ethic, a Puritan work ethic, gets built into the very fabric of our nation. And I think today, as you just look at the world around us, it's not hard to see the legacy of that value get rooted in our society. We value hard work in this country, maybe above anything else. Which is why, on average, we work more than any other culture. We value it more than any other culture in many ways. We celebrate, I think, like the grit of our grandparents' generation, that they were able to overcome certain things, they were able to overcome the depression, build an era. Today we don't use grit language, we use like hustle language. It's the same thing. Hustle culture is the same kind of valuing of hard work, of that same ethic that got built into our nation. If you hustle hard enough, you can change the world. In America, we work hard and we believe that hard work achieves dreams. And I feel like at a cultural level, you might have criticisms of that here if you're sitting in here, but at a cultural level, we're pretty proud of that idea. And again, it comes from something really beautiful. An upending of a culture of deep hierarchies in Europe during the Reformation. But I think today as we like kind of analyze that work ethic and that culture of work ethic, we're also starting to see it unravel a bit around us. we can see some of its shortcomings in that notion. I think uh, if nothing else, we can look at things that are true about America that are untrue about other places. Americans have a higher divorce rate than any other major wealthy country. Which is fascinating. have a higher suicide rate than other wealthy nations. And we have the largest wealth gap of any other nation in the world. And I think because of these kinds of things, not trying to get political, but because of these kinds of things, you see a growing discontent with the kind of work ethic that defines American life. It's not new to this moment. 2011, after the Great Recession, you saw movements like Occupy Wall Street that were protesting a certain kind of understanding of wealth. Or in 2021, we saw the Great Resignation, which is, I was looking at a stat that was in July of 2021, four million workers resigned from their jobs, which is an unprecedented number. it just continued. Right? There's a growing discontentment with that kind of work culture, especially amongst younger generations. Now, the reason I say all of these things, naming our Protestant work ethic and our value of hard work and hustle culture, and then the reason I name that there is some discontentment around it is that as Christians who are talking about the practice of work, we have to talk about it in a a world in which these tensions are true. How do Christians view work in a world that is so elevated that we could maybe call it an idol And in the midst of it unraveling around us and there being legitimate discontentment with some of that experience. How should Christians work? How should Christians talk about work? How should we practice work when we feel these tensions in us, when we see them in the world around us? And how can we work in a way that sparks love? That's the premise of this series. How can we work in a way that sparks love? So that's the question that we have to wrestle with today. And since we spend so much of our time working, it's a pretty important question. So to talk about work, I think we have to begin where all good stories begin, in the beginning which is why Susanna read from Genesis chapter 1 today. Any conversation about work that we're going to have has to begin in Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28, because in this passage that was read for us at the beginning of today, God creates humanity in God's own image. This is what the text says, Genesis 1, verse 26 through 27. Then God said, "'Let us make humanity in our image.'" To resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all of the earth, and all of the crawling things on the earth. So God created humanity in God's own image, in the divine image God created them. Being made in the image of God has at least two major components that are important for our conversation today. There's probably more that we could work through, but there's at least two major components that are important for our conversation. First, to be made in the image of God means that you have an identity that cannot be shaken or changed, that you are a being of value, that you've been made intentionally, you have been created in goodness. To be made in the image of God means that you have an unshakable value. Uh, He's not here today. I was hoping he would be, but a a person who attends our community named David Dillon has been saying recently that God don't make trash. God don't make trash. And that's what it means to be made in the image of God, is that God does not make trash. The second component, though, of being made in the image of God means that we are made to be like God. To be made in the image of God means that we are made valuable, full of dignity, that we are made full of love, and also that we are made to be like God. The Hebrew word for image is the same word that we use for statue, same word that we use for icon, and funny enough, it's the same word that is often used for idol a thing that represents a God, a thing that images a God, a thing that would play the role of that God in the temple and reflect or mirror or display that God's nature to those around it. It's actually why throughout the Old Testament that people get really critical of bowing down to idols because the prophets are like, why are you bowing down to something that is so much less than you are? You are meant to be the idol of the living creator, God. So to be an image bearer means that you are like God, that you bear God's image in the world, that you reflect God's nature and God's presence to the world around you. How do we do that? Well, the text actually tells us. By acting like God. By creating and cultivating and caring for the world around us out of the gifts and goodness that God has given us. To be an image bearer means that we are many creators. That we reign and rule underneath God, but with God in God's world. That we have been created and gifted with the ability to participate in God's work around us. Biblical scholar Richard Middleton, who focuses on being an image bearer, says it this way To be an image bearer means that we are participating and extending. In some way, God's rule or presence on earth. And we do it through the ordinary communal practices of human socio-cultural life. I love this definition of being an image bearer because the work of being an image bearer can feel really heavy. Like it can feel like really weighty. Like, oh man, to be an image bearer feels like I'm like creating something, like ex nihilo, out of nothing. Like, what does it mean to create, to be like God? But this definition that Middleton gives us says, out of ordinary communal practices. Ordinary communal practices extend God's presence to the world around us when they look like God's gift to the world. And that can mean art. Humans create art that creates spaces of God's presence. It can mean dinner parties where people are invited to experience love. It can mean families where we are nurturing those around us. It can look like baked goods for our neighbors. And it can look like better HR structures at our work. Things that extend in some way the way of God, the love of God, the presence of God, the intention of God into the world around us. That's when we are image-bearing, when we look like God is when we are acting like God in the world around us, him being our model and our paradigm. And it can look like as diverse as options as possible. It can look like helping people in the medical industry or throwing parties. It can look like what we are because we are made in the image of God. Being an image bearer an image bearing is anything that extends God's loving, gracious presence around us. Now here's what I'm going to call this. You might have heard this phrase used in other contexts, but I'm going to call this, this idea of being an image bearer, our calling. As Christians, we are called to image God. Right now there might be unique expressions of that calling. That's how sometimes that word is used. There might be unique manifestations of that calling. How we think about it, but our big calling, our big job, our big goal is to be an image bearer, to know our identity as deeply loved, deeply belonging, and out of that identity, out of that created nature, to extend the goodness and presence of God to the world around us. That is our first ultimate calling. Theologians will call it the creation mandate, which is a very dry phrase. So we're going to call it calling. That is our calling. And any conversation about career or work has to begin here because before we work, before we have careers, we have a calling. Before we talk about our jobs or before we talk about our vocations or our interests or our hobbies, we have to talk about our calling. We are called to image God through our gifts, our talents, our resources, and our community and that calling is greater than our careers and is true regardless of the career that we live within or the career that we have some careers don't get to be places of calling and others not no calling is bigger than career all careers can be a place of calling and our lives more importantly are bigger than the careers in which we live within. So often calling and career are conflated and they can be beautiful expressions of one another, but they are not the same thing. Your career or your job can be a place that expresses what God gave you, how God made you. It can be, and that is beautiful and it is aligning and it feels good to have those places in alignment. But career is never the only place you are called. And it is never the ultimate place in which you are called. Calling is ultimate. Career is secondary. You're also called to your family. You're also called to your neighborhood. You're also called to your local communities. So all places are domains in which you live out this divine calling. All conversations about jobs and careers begin here because I think if we can begin in this place with understanding the difference between calling and career, what it does is it frees us up as we look at our careers and our vocations and our jobs. One, it again reinforces that our identity is not connected to our career, which often it can be in American culture. So it helps us find some security disconnected from our career, but it also calls us and expects of us more regardless of what your job is. Let me illustrate this in a few different ways. And since Genesis takes this in the context of a garden, I'm going to continue to use garden imagery to talk about how calling versus career can change how we think about our jobs. Within this way of thinking, careers can become tools for creativity or tools for our calling as opposed to the ultimate place of our calling. Our jobs can become tools for being an image bearer, for living out this divine mandate. Like hammers are tools for craftsmen or brushes for an artisan or computers for developers. I was going to try to give you something more specific for what tech people do, and I asked all my tech friends, and they just trolled me in Slack for an hour. And I was like, I think that's what tech people do. They troll you in Slack for an hour. So as trolling in Slack is for developers, your jobs can be for your calling. And that can mean that your job is an easy expression of your calling. I feel very fortunate that in many ways, being a pastor feels like an easy expression Of the way that God has called me, wired me, and gifted me. But this is something that all pastors have to wrestle with. I'm still called regardless of whether I have this job or not. And I can't put my identity here as close of alignment as it makes me feel. So your job can be an expression of your gifting a clear sense of where your gifts live. But for most of us, and even with this job, honestly, but, but for most of us, our jobs aren't as clearly easy expressions of the way that God has gifted us and what God has called us into. They don't feel the same kind of alignment. When, um, so I think I've told this story before, but when my dad died when I was young, my mom did the sexiest thing possible and started a dental insurance company. Dental insurance is very cool. And if you asked her why she did it, she knew dental insurance. It's like the industry that she had come from. And all of a sudden, her husband had died. And so she wanted a career that enabled her to take me to school and pick me up at the end of the day. So for her, the career was a tool to love and care for her child an expression of what she is truly called to, extending the presence of God to those around her. And that wasn't the only place that the calling expressed itself. If you asked her how she thought about success in her job, it's my favorite thing about mom in some ways, is she would always say that she wanted the company to be a vehicle for her and others to achieve their dreams. So every employee that she hired, she'd be like, this is a vehicle to achieve your dreams. And if it stops being a vehicle for that, you should figure something else out and we should figure out how to help you get there. And so she would always measure success in like GEDs that were got or homes that were purchased or 401Ks that were established. She didn't uniquely care about dental insurance. She's not called to dental insurance. Nobody's called to insurance. (laughs) It's like somebody in here is like, hey. No, it's an environment or a tool that allows you to do your calling like a hammer for a craftsman. It can be a tool to express what it is that God gave you. See, when your calling is bigger than your career and you understand what God is doing in Genesis 1, then any career can become a tool for calling, no matter what that career is. So your careers can be tools— Second, to continue using the garden illustration, careers can be the gardens that you cultivate. Our jobs can be places where we care for those we work with or those around us. I was talking about this with a friend recently, and he was expressing that he doesn't necessarily love his job. The product is pretty good, but the product is okay. But he just got bought by venture capitalists, and so he's like, they're making decisions that I don't love. They seem to value money more than anything else. But while I'm here, and while I'm in the position that I am in, well, I can fight for some people to get raises. And I can fight for people to get paid the way they should. And I can fight for this space to be like a safe and healthy environment for those that I work with. I'm not necessarily passionate about the tech industry. I'm not necessarily called to the tech work but he is called to the people that he works with to extend the presence of God to those there. See, in this example, the job doesn't feel like an easy expression of giftings. And yet it is a domain or a garden that enables cultivation and enables you to use your gifts and your calling to care for those around you. Paul says this about work in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 through 11. He couches this conversation at work in loving your brothers and sisters. He says, you don't need us to write to you about loving your brothers and sisters because God has already taught you to love each other. In fact, you are doing loving deeds for all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. Now we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do so even more. How are they doing this? How are they doing these loving gestures? Well, they aim to live quietly. They mind their own business and they earn their own living, just as I told you. He's like, they're just living normal, ordinary, socio-cultural lives, to go back to that definition at the beginning. And yet through that space and through those places, they are caring for and extending the presence of God to those around them. You're cultivating that garden, that life source. It's like your career can be a garden, and your job in that place is to care and cultivate the garden, the people that are there, the people you work with. And like a garden, it can be a place that provides for you outside of the garden. That's why you go To work. That's why you have a garden. We often forget this about characters throughout Scripture, but Paul, the Apostle Paul, is bivocational. He's a tent maker. Most of his ministry journeys are funded by his own vocation. So it can be a place that you care for people. It can be a place that you love those around you, and your jobs can also be a way of using the rewards of the garden, so to say, to enable you to continue loving outside of work. So your jobs, your careers can be a garden. And then finally, sometimes careers can be thorns that you contend with. In that same story in Genesis, Genesis 1, God creates humans in God's image, calls them to be image bearers. And then in Genesis 3, humans reject that vocation. And God is saying, like, what's going to happen now that we've rejected that vocation? And in Genesis 3, verse 17, this conversation happens where God says, the land is going to be cursed. In pain will you eat from it every day of your life weeds and thistles will grow for you even as you eat the fields plants and by the sweat of your face will you eat bread until you return to the land since from it you were taken your soil and to soil you will return the notion that's happening here is that evil and sin has changed the nature of the work that we do it's changed the landscape or the domain of the work that we do. And in a garden, sometimes that's hard work now. Sometimes you contend with weeds, sometimes you contend with invasive species, sometimes you contend with thorns. And in similar ways, that can impact our careers in other places. In Acts chapter 19, you get this really beautiful story where the story of Jesus is spreading so much throughout a community that it begins to upend an exploitive industry. And the craftsmen of this new exploitive industry, they have a riot because they're like, we're not making any money anymore. Right, so in the garden, it's thorns and thistles that have to be contended with. And then in Acts 19, and I think in Ephesus, it's a different industry that is exploitive. Or in the story of Jesus, Jesus enters into the temple and tosses the tables because something exploitive and wrong and thorn-like has begun to grow up in the place of something that is really good. And, Miss, you in the exact same way as we go about our calling, this gifting, this mandate to live out the image of God around us, we will enter into places in which we have to contend with thorns and weeds. And sometimes it's actual thorns and weeds. Sometimes it's exploitive structures. And your job in that place, your calling in that place, can be to contend with those gestures and demonstrations of evil. Sometimes that can look like quitting a job because that's how you need to contend with what's happening at your career. And that's okay because your identity is rooted in something deeper than that career. Sometimes it's creating better structures in that job, like a better HR program in that structure to take care of people. Sometimes it's filing a complaint in that HR structure because something exploitive has happened. You got to contend with a thorn. Sometimes it's creating spaces that are loving and gracious and having meals in that space that give people a place of welcome to know that they are loved and accepted as well. Sometimes our careers become places where we must contend. And it can take on a lot of different forms and can take on a lot of different gestures. This is less dramatic, but in 2018, my wife and I... Uh, well, I got given a sabbatical by Missio. Every seven years, pastors get given sabbaticals here. And so that was my first sabbatical. And my wife wanted to go. You know, I got three months off. She's like, I want three months off. And that, we wanted her to go too. We felt like that would be really important for both of us to have at least some amount of this time to rest together, like a month, two months, something like that. But her job did not offer her a sabbatical program like mine had. She had, like, paid time off, right, PTO, but not three months of PTO. And so we really wrestled with, like, what do you do? Like, what do you do in this kind of environment? Like, do you ask for unpaid time off? Do you quit? And we kind of decided that we were willing to do both. We were willing to quit, and we were hoping, though, that they would just give us a time off, either unpaid or some kind of combination of the two. So Tori went to her company, to her bosses, and she asked for, I think, like two months of time off. And the thing that was most interesting about their response is they said yes, first of all, which was very gracious to them. And then the next question they asked was, why? It was this, like, financial investment company. People worked 12-hour days consistently, and they made h- money hand over fist. Tori didn't. She was a designer. You know, they don't pay them the same kind of money they pay in- investors. But they worked forever, and that was part of the reason that we wanted to do it. She was just working like 10-hour days to try to keep up with the accountants. And when she asked, can I have two months off? They said, yes. And then they were like, but why would you want it? Like, that's not going to be great for your career here. Like, you're not going to advance up the ladder as everybody else is. And then they were like, why also would you want to spend two months with your husband? <laughs> they actually asked her that. And I was like, good question. No. But I feel like that's like that moment, that dynamic is so revealing of what is happening in a culture of thorns and thistles and weeds. They were good, gracious, wonderful people that she worked with. They wanted her to take the time off in many ways. They offered the time. Take two months, that's great. But they were just so confused as to why somebody would. Why would you deny the value of hard work and hustle culture? Why would you step down the corporate hierarchy? Why would you have a value of being with someone over making money? They just didn't understand it. And then when they told her that, Tori and I were like, we have to take the time off. That's actually the primary reason now we have to take it off. We need this for ourselves. Like, we need to step away from our own health and our own, like, emotional formation to have a space that values something different. And we need to tell a different story. We need to offer the people around her just some other way of living, And sometimes our careers and our vocations and our jobs become places in which we contend with thorns and thistles, unhealthy values, unhealthy cultures, unhealthy structures, so that we might offer another way, an image-bearing way to those around us. Which we can do if we understand that what we are called to, what we are made to be, is true regardless of the careers that we live within. So, Monsieur, what if? What if we believed our calling, our image-bearingness, was bigger than our career's? What might happen to the way that we work? What might happen to the way that we live? What might happen to the way that we love those around us? What might happen to the way that we set and established priorities in our life? I don't have answers to all those questions, but I think one thing that might be true is that we would experience freedom. Paul says in Galatians that for freedom, Christ has set you free. And I feel like so often we do submit ourselves to another burden. And in America, that burden is often work. A good thing becomes an ultimate thing. And so what if, Monsieur, we had this understanding of our lives, this understanding of our purpose, this understanding of our calling, that we are created and made to image God through our gifts, our talents, our resources, our community. And that's true regardless of the careers that we have, and in all the careers that we have. I think the more we get that image in our head, the more that idea makes its way into our heart, the more free we will become. And the more that we will know what we do everywhere we go is significant. So, what if, miss you? Now, hold this question in your head as we continue to worship together. There's a few more questions here that I wanted to put up here just to think through and maybe have us like challenge our own hearts. Which is greater in your life right now, career or calling? Which one takes more emotional space from you? Which one dominates your imagination? For you specifically, how can this notion of calling, this notion of being an image bearer who's made in the image and likeness of God, called to be like God, how can that change your view of work? And what are some ways you can live your calling at work this week? What might begin to disrupt that for you? Just simple practices, simple tasks, simple risks that might begin to disrupt that and turn your practice of work into a practice that truly sparks love. Missy, let me pray for us. And as I do, and as we continue to worship and as we gather at these table, would you allow this conversation, what God is doing in you and what God has made you to be start to disrupt a bit? And when you're ready, I invite you to the table. And the table, we gathered it every single week because it is the perfect example, the perfect symbol, the perfect place in which we get to experience God making room for us and extending God's presence to us. So what happens at this table, that's the same thing that we're invited to do everywhere we go. Image God and extend the presence of God to those around us. So when you're ready, I invite you to experience that presence too. Let me pray for us. Spirit, would you speak to us today? Would you open our hearts and our minds to see the work that you're doing here, to to see the truth that you're declaring to us? I think there's so much, like, possibility in this conversation, but I just have to confess that as a person who is a, um, probably unhealthy, puts their identity in work, like, I need to be challenged in this conversation. I need you to open my heart and disrupt my thinking in this conversation so that I can live into freedom. So, God, as you do that in me, would you help us all experience the freedom of you? Knowing that we are called image bearers, no matter what our career is, no matter what our job is, and in all of our careers and our jobs, in every place that we find ourselves. Would that truth infuse our life with a new kind of meaning? not a heaviness or a burden, but just a new kind of meaning that that charges our moments with a beautiful significance because you're with us in it. God, maybe above all things today, would we experience your presence extended to us so that we might be a people who image that gift everywhere we go. So we pray these things in your name. Amen.